Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for tuning in today. Recently, the United Nations General Assembly's fourth committee voted to move forward with renewing the mandate of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, known as UNRWA. Founded in 1949, UNRWA has a long history of supporting anti-Israel incitement. Here to discuss what the renewal of UNRWA's mandate means for Israel is today's guest, Dr. Asaf Romorowski. Dr. Romorowski is the Executive Director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East and a fellow in the Middle East Forum. He has co-authored a book with Alexander Jaffe on the issue of Palestinian refugees' aid titled Religion, Politics, and the Origins of Palestine Refugee Relief, published in 2013. In addition, his work has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The New Republic, and The Times of Israel, among other media outlets. Dr. Romorowski is also a professor at the University of Haifa, and he has published widely on various aspects of the Israeli-Arab conflict and Zionist history. Welcome again to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So let's begin really at the beginning. Before we talk about the issues that I've raised in the introduction and a couple of other points uh, later on, um, let's talk about UNRWA uh, just to go over uh, the founding, why it was founded, and how it uh, somehow wound up where it is today, somewhere off the rails of the original mandate and the uh, original directive uh, set down now 70 years ago. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> again, thank you for having me. Uh, UNRWA's um, original mandate, uh, and this was American foreign policy in the Middle East in the 1950s and 60s, had to do with the fact that refugees should be resettled, reintegrated, and repatriated with the idea of providing individuals with skill sets to move on beyond their refugee status. Uh, what UNRWA has become, correctly as, as you stated, is basically become the gatekeeper of a stasis of maintaining Palestine, Arab Palestinians in refugee status uh, as a result of a political calculus made by the Arab world. And this goes back for your listeners to understand the historical connection to the war of 1948-1949 as it relates to Israel's war of independence. Uh, the understanding was uh, and has been within the Arab narrative, and especially the Arab-Palestinian narrative, is that 1948 is considered to be the original sin, the original sin of Israel's creation, and the consistent reminder of that sinful act, that is Israel's coming to fruition, are indeed the Arab-Palestinian refugees. To that end, uh, Arab-Palestinian refugees are uniquely defined like no other refugee population. They are, and I paraphrase here, anybody who was born in mandatory Palestine between 1946 and 1948. And the kicker is, of course, their descendants. The ability of lineage, which no, 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 no population has, has been given to the Palestinian refugees. And so when you look at the amount, or the so-called amount of uh, Arab-Palestinian refugees today, that is a result of this unique definition of who they are. So today, UNRWA claims they have on the books between five to six million refugees, where they all come from. That's part of this 
architecture that was defined uh, by UNRWA. The other unique ability that UNRWA had and really played into UNRWA's advantage is that UNRWA was created as a so-called temporary organization, temporary that has no end, as we can see here seven decades later, but UNRWA was also created prior to the sister organization of refugees, UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which deals with refugees worldwide. So as a result of them being created before, they were also able to define and redefine what they are and what they do. Moreover, they are an Article 22 agency of the General Assembly. Article 22 agencies have little to no oversight by the General Assembly, and they're based on voluntary contributions. And so they've been able to maintain this architecture financially, politically, and culturally. So like many other uh, agencies of the UN, once they're on the books, um, it's, it's pretty hard uh, to, uh, to move, uh, either to close them down or to reform them. Um, UNRWA has what we would call a bloated bureaucracy. So how, how did it, over the years, just continue to grow and grow uh, to, to the point where today, and I, I'd like you to comment on this, uh, there have been uh, some serious allegations beyond the, the anti-Israel uh, activity and behavior of the organization, uh, serious allegations of corruption. Yes. So what you have is, you know, this is part of the, the uh, related to your question, UNRWA today has become and has been over the years the largest employer of uh, Palestinians. And so what that, is me what that does is you have this, uh, what I would consider to be a, um, a hijacking of the, uh, of the agency which they claim to take care of. And so there's kind of what I would call, you know, in marketing, regulatory capture, where basically the constituency that they claim to serve has basically taken over uh, the, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, the, the, the asylum, the, you know, the, the, the inmates are running the asylum. Uh, what you have is this environment where UNRWA has, and so the international component uh, is, um, is, is really the smaller component, but in the tone of employees, we're talking about 30,000 employees that are all UNRWA employees and are all Palestinians who are maintaining this narrative. The international component, which, you know, all the international, uh, the CEOs and the administration that, you know, have been, uh, that, are, that are not Palestinians, they have been bought into this um, architecture and this narrative. Uh, and to a large extent, you know, one of the symptoms that we're seeing today is in a use and abuse of the constituency uh, in the tone of billions and billions of dollars. Uh, which UNRWA has been receiving over the years uh, from countries, not only the, you know, the Arab world, but from the West, up until the Trump administration froze uh, the contributions that the United States would give. We were the largest Western con contributor in the tone of $400 million a year. And so we have seen now a recent report that has come out, um, ironically published by Al Jazeera, an ethics report, uh, that deals with the level of corruption, uh, abuse of funds uh, by the former CEO uh, that um, has been going around and abusing money. Um, and there was a uh, there was there was a question about a relationship that he had that was beyond professional uh, with uh, one of his aides, 
uh, and using her and using funds to send her around the world on first class tickets, uh, but also the whole level of, uh, of of abuse of funds based on the image of refugees who really need aid. And so there's a, there's a, there's a there's a disconnect between the lives that the officials have been living or the the, the, the executive branch uh, of UNRWA and the constituency they claim to serve. Uh, that has caused a great deal of puncturing UNRWA's image uh, in the eyes of the West, uh, and even, you know, and I would say positively, uh, even in the eyes of Europe. Uh, the former, you know, the now ousted uh, CEO, uh, the executive secretary general of UNRWA, Pierre uh, Kerbel, uh, has been out, ousted, and the country, as a, uh, as a Swiss uh, in, in citizen, uh, the Swiss now have decided to freeze their monies to UNRWA as a result of the embarrassment it has caused them. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of, um, you know, an eye-opening to what actually is happening on the ground. And this is, again, something that I think, uh, you know, needs to be looked at vis-a-vis um, -vis the fact that, really, who are the constituents, what is actually happening on the ground. Uh, there has not been a real, I mean, there has been quasi needs assessments, but when audit reports have looked at actually what UNRWA does, you really don't get a clear answer. Un UNRWA has refused outside auditors, they do internal audits, and so it's really hard to get a sense of what are they actually doing, uh, how many laptops, how many pencils they've bought. I mean, much, much of the uh, service that they provide is education. They have a monopoly over a lot of the educational system uh, within the Palestinian areas. And so it's really hard to get a real clear needs assessment of what are they actually serving and what are the actual needs are. And these um, latest out these latest events have caused the West, in particular, to wake up and say, really, what what are we actually supporting, and what's the end game here? Which I think is something that myself and many of uh, uh, many of my colleagues who've been involved in the UNRWA space have been arguing and criticizing UNRWA for years. Well, it is noteworthy that uh, for years, from the get-go, um, the educational component of, of UNRWA has been anti-Israel, and that's not raised eyebrows over the years. Uh, in, in recent years with the, the Gaza wars, uh, the, the use of UNRWA facilities uh, by Hamas uh, and others in Gaza uh, to um, store uh, weapons or even perhaps to fire. Uh, we've seen uh, evidence of that, to, to fire rockets and weapons uh, from uh, near uh, UNRWA facilities. I mean, all of that uh, has, been, has been raised, uh, much of it in our own community, uh, but within the UN system or in the international system, um, hardly uh, a... Uh, uh, really any kind of attention. Now comes the, the corruption uh, charges, and you mentioned the Swiss uh, pulling back on their assistance. Uh, have there been any other examples of countries that, that now, seeing at least the corruption charges, uh, have decided to uh, take another look at this and also to cut their funding beyond the United States, let's say, and, and Switzerland? Uh, the Netherlands have made some comments about th this as well, um, and you're seeing uh, some other countries kind of looking carefully exactly about what UNRWA does. Uh, it's not been a 
full change uh, within the architecture. There's still a belief that if we're saving refugees and refugees are in need, we need to help them. But I think the fact that the Swiss and the Netherlands uh, are, are waking up uh, to exactly looking at where their money is going and what exactly are they funding, uh, I think that's a beginning to um, puncture the architecture of UNRWA monies uh, in the sense that it's not easy for them. I mean, they've been claiming uh, for, lo for a long time now since uh, we froze our money in the United States that uh, they are in dire need, the needs are great, and give us more money. Then these allegations come about, and then people were saying, really? Uh, I mean, the fact is that you're not even taking care of your own people, but you're actually just uh, helping to, um, you know, only fund your execs and the upper echelon of, of UNRWA's administration. Uh, I mean, I would like to see a trickle-down effect. Uh, you're starting to see that happening, uh, given the fact that it was a clear embarrassment of the Europeans, uh, especially to the Swiss, that one of their own, who had taken on this humanitarian initiative, which was supposed to be something that is uh, something to be proud of, uh, you know, the level of abuse that has taken place. By the way, uh, you should also note that, of course, he's denying any of the allegations, um, and he did uh, leave, uh, but um, in a storm. And this is continuing on. Uh, they have still—the the airing of the dirty laundry on UNRWA uh, is something that you're starting to see take a ripple effect. Uh, but not in mass. I mean, again, you know, I think that, you know, obviously we can uh, go into that a little bit more. The fact that UNRWA's mandate was now renewed, uh, you know, tells you that people still believe that they are the number one issue uh, and the number one victim of the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic, uh, the conflict. And as a result of that, we need to continue supporting this organization to no end. Well, that's really the question. If I understand correctly, I think 170 countries voted for renewing the mandate. And um, this is in the face of the corruption allegations, not to mention, again, all the other uh, activity, the anti-Israel uh, activity. Um, why wouldn't the numbers be less in the face, particularly in the face of these uh, of corruption charges? You would think. Uh, but again, I think that part of the symbolism that plays into the refugee, you know, the word refugee connotes uh, people fleeing for their lives. Uh, you know, they live in refugee camps, you know, the fact that they have no running water. Uh, I think people most think, you know, uh, about the imagery of Sudan or somewhere in Africa that, uh, you know, that, that the resources are not there. That is not the reality on the ground as it relates to the, um, the so-called refugee camps, as it relates to the Arab Palestinians. But the imagery has created this cognitive dissonance as it relates to why people support this and the fact that there are people going around the world and you can find quotes uh, from Arab leaders going back to Nasser uh, and even going up to individuals like uh, Osama bin Laden saying we're never going to rest until the Palestine issue is resolved and it's all about the Arab Palestinian refugees. That itself has created uh, this fallacious imagery that has fueled the, the agenda. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that the Arab world has continued to fund this in the tone uh, of billions because for them, this goes back again to my earlier point about 1948, 1949, had they, the, the, the kind of positive, you know, or the so-called agreement, you know, not written agreement, but the, but the understanding was between UNRWA 
and uh, the Arab world. UNRWA said, you know, we need money. The Arab world said, we'll take care of you so long as the refugee problem is going to be your problem, not ours. So it gave them an out in the sense that they took no responsibility whatsoever for the reality post-1948-1949. And as a result of that, that's why no Arab country, with the exception of Jordan, uh, and there were some parts of Lebanon before the Arab Spring, that ever gave the Palestinians citizenship to maintain and sustain them in refugee status in order to put the blame on Israel. Israel created the problem. It's Israel's responsibility in conjunction with the West to solve the problem. And that was by design. But things are changing now. We see, for example, uh, given the Iranian threat, uh, the, uh, the, the chaos uh, that uh, has been brought uh, to, um, to Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iran's uh, uh, march to the, to the sea, as it were, uh, also its support for the Houthis and its uh, support for, for Hamas and Hezbollah, uh, all of this um, has, is, is changing some of the relationships, for example, uh, with some of the Gulf countries as it relates uh, to Israel. Is that, is that reflected, do you think, in, in how going forward uh, some Arab states will look at this 70-year this issue and, and perhaps uh, uh, take another look at, at, uh, uh, at, at the situation on the ground? Uh, I think it, it already has. I mean, and I think to your point, and you're right, the, the Middle East has changed and evolved. And I think, it, and I will go back to uh, the beginning of the eruption of the Arab Spring, where you had real individuals fleeing for their lives. Uh, and actually, interestingly enough, you know, going back to Syria early on, there were individuals fleeing from Syria to the UNRWA offices in Lebanon. And UNRWA said, we can't take care of you, you know, because, you know, we, don't, we need more money. And so there is a sense of a gold standard of refugee status, which are the Arab Palestinians, and then the rest. And I think that as a result of the, how the Middle East is evolving and changing and related to all the um, more real conflicts that are happening in the region as it relates to ISIS and the Houthis and everything else that you've described correctly, um, you're seeing a kind of a reality check as far as are the Palestinians really the number one issue in the region? And even though they are, have been sold as an evergreen issue, uh, it has really uh, you know, caused people to wake up and say, you know, we're hurting, but really you're living in a, um, in a decent lifestyle. You have homes, you have an educational system, you have Wi-Fi, you have access to the West. Uh, and uh, these are things, despite maintaining their refugee status, uh, it's really more of a uh, of an imagery uh, that has gone on from generation to generation, which continues to perpetuate um, the problem without any kind of end. But I think the fact that the Arab world, uh, in general, not only on UNRWA monies, uh, has not been donating as they were uh, to the Palestinian Authority, and Abbas himself has complained about that. I think has a um, has taken effect given the fact that there is actually a, a new reality to look at, in the sense that, as we know, uh, we have Israel today with newer and better ties with the Saudis, uh, with the Gulf, you know, in, uh, for sure. Uh, now you're seeing Israelis being allowed to go to Dubai. 
The fact that there is more normalized ties between Israel and the Arab world uh, is really taken an effect and is really um, shined a light about the fallacies going on within the Palestinian Authority's larger architecture and within uh, UNRWA and you know and you know by you know by, you know uh, by extension. Uh, what exactly are the Palestinian refugees and what is actually happening in that population? But it's interesting that, uh, you know, here you have the contradiction in terms, and, and perhaps uh, this really explains so much of, of the, um, the, the lack of movement in terms of, of negotiations um, between Israelis and Palestinians, where the, the Palestinians believe... Uh, and you've just stated it with the UNRWA case. They they believe as if the world hasn't changed. That this might as well be 19, you know, 55 or 75. Um, 170 countries vote uh, to to continue the mandate. Uh, you go to the Human Rights Council. You go to UNESCO, uh, the World Heritage Committee. Wherever you look in the UN system, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they continue to to have these votes and um, feel that the international wind is at their back and uh, have had no incentive, no incentive to come to a table. Uh, why would they go to the table when they have all of this international support? And yet, outside the UN, things really are changing and changing rapidly uh, on the ground. Um, I'm not asking a rhetorical question here, but do you think it's that that we're coming to a juncture at some point here where um, that reality, um, kind of the rubber meets the road situation, where the situation tips in the other direction. Potentially, uh, but you know, to your point, I mean, you know, you know, there is a uh, the United Nations, as you and I know, is an island, uh, and it, and it mostly, I would say, more like a coffee pot is putting out a lot of smoke. Uh, but the even though the reality on the ground is changing. There is still a belief, uh, you know, the anti-Israel animus is a religion within the United Nations. And the Palestinian cause, uh, despite the fact that there has been a great deal of a uh, uh, breaking down of this orthodoxy, uh, still the majority, um, I remember that, uh, you know, about uh, two, three years ago, uh, I was in Geneva at the UN Human Rights Council. And every country around the room went uh, without, uh, you know, without any change or any kind of remorse, saying that the root cause of the problem resorts with uh, the occupation and the existence of Arab-Palestinian refugees. And so that this narrative has been sold uh, and to the success story of uh, the Palestinians. I mean, really, you know, even though you are seeing, you know, this beginning of a crumbling of the narrative, the only place where the Palestinians and Mahmoud Abbas and company get uh, a, a form, and you see it every year during their address, is through these international bodies, and in particular the United Nations. And they've been able to sell that. This goes back to the 2011 platform of UDI, Unilateral Declaration of Independence, by internationalizing the conflict and selling the suffering and selling the fact that we are stateless and the fact that we are refugees in perpetuity, and the fact that uh, we are, t we are, you know, uh, we are at the, at the, you know, at the, uh, you know, we, we are only at the hands of the evil Israelis and the Americans. Doesn't matter what administration, but of course now it's easier to blame um, 
you know, President Trump. It's easy to blame Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, there is this, you know, so all of that plays into their uh, propaganda as far as selling the issues. Um, again, the corruption is at the top, and you'll say, well, we'll clean it up, but the constituency and the growth of refugees is still there. And so those are the so-called facts on the ground. Uh, and so they may argue we need to clean up the, the corruption, but the need is still great. And when you have leaders um, like uh, the Queen of Jordan, you know, uh, Queen Rania, who is of Palestinian descent, being one of UNRWA spokesmen and putting on parlor meetings in the Arab world and saying, I'm a Palestinian, you need to help UNRWA uh, give us money. Resolution is not here in Jordan but we have to solve the problem over there, uh, that resonates within the psyche uh, of the Arab world and within the United Nations. I just ask uh, one other question as uh, relates to this uh, before we close. Uh, there has, over the last uh, number of years, been a move to tell the story of the 800,000 uh, Jewish refugees from Arab countries um, who... Um, were um, uh, displaced um, in, in the, the period of uh, the late 40s and early 50s, and their story really was, was not told for a variety of reasons over the years. But in recent years, there really has been a, a, an attempt uh, to, uh, to tell that story. Um, do you see that that narrative, that important historical narrative, now taking its place in the discussion about what actually happened in, in 1948? Or do you think that uh, so much time has passed that, that catching up will, will take a long time? Um, it's a good question. And it always comes up in the conversation regarding refugees. Uh, the Arab Palestinians flatly deny it in the sense that because by default, what's interesting, you know, from the, you know, from the historical perspective, the fact that Israel comes to fruition as a result, and, and there is a state, um, they can say that they that they're different, uh, and so they deny any kind of wrongdoing as it relates to the Jews from Arab lands. I mean, Jews in, in Iraq uh, and other places were forced to sign documentation. You can leave here with one suitcase, and you can never come back asking for reparations. So from that perspective, they left under their own volition, and they did no wrong. Um, it doesn't, you know, one could argue, you know, by definition, you know, any, you know, you know that, you know, UNRWA should be serving those populations as well. Uh, but no, this was um, only devoted to a special case study by design, de defined by the Arab world, uh, to make this resonate. And so while it's a beginning to, um, you know, again, it's adding to the larger narrative. It adds to, it adds to the, um, the richness and the, the cultural richness of what makes up Israeli society and Jews from the Arab world. And there's been a movement within, the, uh, within those communities, uh, Syrian Jews, Iraqi Jews, uh, Iranian Jews, to make a case at the General Assembly that we should also be acknowledged, but because the State of Israel was the positive result of that, they don't get as much um, airtime, so to speak, or enough, it doesn't resonate enough uh, with the larger uh, world community because, again, the Palestinians are the only refugees that we need to be caring about. 
And so it's caused, it helps, uh, you know, the, the Israeli case in the sense of showcasing what makes up Israel, but in the world discourse, it doesn't really create enough of a balance or a counterbalance uh, to deal with the Arab-Palestinian refugees. Well, it's certainly a story that needs to be told about being forced out of, uh, of 10 or 12 countries uh, in a very short period of time. And uh, uh, that story um, continues. Uh, now I've noticed uh, really an event uh, at the United Nations just uh, a couple of days ago, and there are other events. Uh, people are writing about it, and, and it's uh, an important uh, chapter in the history of the conflict, which uh, uh, unfortunately has taken a while to be told, but nevertheless uh, important uh, that people know about it. Well, uh, Asaf, thank you very much uh, for joining us today, and I'm sure uh, this issue will, uh, the UNRWA issue will continue uh, to be an open one, and I hope we'll have another opportunity uh, in the future to uh, continue the discussion. Thank you as always, Dan. Much appreciate the hospitality, and uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I do hope to continue the conversation. And uh, I agree with you that the story needs to be told vis-a-vis Jews and Arab lands. So it's going to take uh, going to take time, and uh, but this will overshadow it, unfortunately. So uh, I'm sure the story will continue going onward. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benebrit.org. Like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Dr. Asaf Romorowski, I'm Dan Mariashin. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.